Sort of as I was praying, you could, in theory, imagine that one of the roles of a church would be to help people actually have better lives. I don't know if you're with me on that, but that's sort of my dream, is that churches would do that. There's one other stream of American industry that has the same professed goal, and that's the self-help industry. I don't know how many of you have been self-help devotees. I've done a little research on self-help. It is, at least at the last uh, estimate, estimate, it's an $8 billion per year industry in America, so a big obviously a big industry. And uh, as I got started with this church, I thought, well, in one sense, these are the other people trying to do what we do. I should learn something about this. Um, So I did. I read a lot on the subject. I even went to one self-help seminar with maybe uh, 20 or so friends from this church just to see what it was like. And it's safe to say, I think, that the day felt like a bit of a tease in the end. We'd all read this person's book before we went, and we liked it fine. It was a very inspiring book with lots of great stories and um, sort of vague principles that seemed kind of helpful and uh, nothing particularly objectionable. And so we were looking forward to hearing this famous speaker uh, fill out some of the things we'd seen in the book but didn't quite know how to put into practice. And what happened um, instead was that what he told us as he went through each of the 20-ish points was that to really understand that that one of 20 points he was making, we would be advised to buy the $200 CD set about that point in the lobby. Now, none of us were particular math geniuses, but we thought, that sounds like a lot of money. You know, there's like 25 of these points and $200 a pop to really understand what he was saying. And we had, after all, read his book and we had, after all, paid to come to the seminar. You'd think we would learn something, you know, before the multi-thousand dollar investment. Um... Now, it's not to say that all this reading in self-help didn't have anything to teach me. Uh, It seemed to me, I could be wrong, it seemed to me that a lot of what I was reading had a lot in common with this New Englander, this famous New Englander, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He wrote a famous book a while back called Self-Reliance. And it seemed like a lot of the self-help stuff I was getting had a lot in common with Emerson. So things like, you know, don't play the victim. Quit your excuses. If you aren't happy with some aspect of your life, no one's going to solve it but you. Take charge of that life. Set up things like measurable goals and set up concrete steps about how you're planning to reach those goals. Have a positive attitude. Don't be a negative person. Have a positive attitude out there. Um, Ideally, there is this concept floating around that it would be very helpful, and which of us wouldn't want this, to get a set up a team of, quote, life coaches to help us with our journey. People who are experts at different parts of the things we want to see happen in our life, who are cheering us on and mentoring us in the things that we want to see happen in our lives. That seems great. Um, You need to take charge of your relationships was a part of the kind of self-reliance message I was picking up. So if, if you're a woman with a guy who's bad for you, take charge and act. Don't play the victim. Uh, if you're a guy and you see a woman who's, who's good for you, then do what it takes to build that nurturing, long-lasting, great relationship that you deserve. No one is responsible for your life but you. You. Get moving. It felt like I was uh, always in the presence of a really great high school basketball coach, you know, who was like prodding me and kicking me in the fanny and getting me moving. And I think, I like being, I mean, who, which of us couldn't use a constant high school basketball coach goading us towards our dreams? That seemed like a good thing. And yet, I started talking to friends who were putting this advice into practice. And what I kept hearing consistently was that they almost all said that the advice seemed to slip through their fingers like water. That their lives weren't that much better as a result of all the time and effort they'd spent with these tips, which otherwise were unobjectionable. I mean, who could, who could argue with anything they've just said? They all seem worthy. But 
nonetheless, as people tried to put them into practice, what I was hearing is that they still felt as miserable and powerless as they felt before. There's one famous part of the Bible where we're most clearly given life rules in just this sense, and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. I will say that the life rules in this section of the Bible have a little bit of a different upshot than the life rules I was learning about in my self-help jaunt. Um, these rules have sort of a different promise behind them in terms of what is going to be the result. What will you get if you put them into practice? And these are the rules that we find at the very beginning stretch of what's called the Law of Moses that uh, starts in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. In a later part of the Bible, uh, one of the writers of the Psalms looks back at these rules and at the Law of Moses and sings their praises, talks about how great they are. And he talks about how great they are on self-help terms. This is uh, the author who wrote Psalm 119, and uh, he says, Your promises, meaning these rules of life, have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. So there's survey data indicates that these self-help rules work. I love promises that have been thoroughly tested by the hard data. Um, this ultimate law, this ultimate sense of life rules, starts with this famous, famous list of kind of a summary of the whole thing called the Ten Commandments. Jesus is so captivated by this law of Moses and by the Ten Commandments that he writes his own take on them called the Sermon on the Mount later on. He seems to recast them into a kind of a different spin, and he often references back to the Ten Commandments and says, you know, you've read this. Let me deepen that a bit for you by saying this. And so we'll be looking at some of Jesus's uh, sort of commentary on the Ten Commandments as we go in this series as well. Um, let's take a look at them. They're printed on your program. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now there's a sense living in, I suppose, the, the western part of the world, of familiarity with the Ten Commandments. They're sort of a part of our common heritage. Um, it, it feels like we know them, I think, probably better than we do. I remember as a, an atheist in high school, I was having a, a kind of heated argument with uh, one Christian friend about why he thought I should follow God and why I needed to be a Christian and why I needed to know Jesus, and I was pushing back why I didn't and why atheism was fine for me. And he started hitting me with points that struck me as crazy. So he started saying, well, if you want to be a good person, you know, you'll do that. And I thought, so you're saying I'm a bad person? And so the card I played with that one is I said, so what's your standard of being a good person? The Ten Commandments? I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal right here. I'm an atheist, and I will do the Ten Commandments, okay? I'll sign off on those. If it's just morality you're talking about, I'm in. And that seemed to, he kind of walked off and harumphed off that I trumped him. Now, in retrospect, what I said was absurd. Which of the Ten Commandments exactly was I intending to keep? 
well, one, I had never read them, so that was sort of a, a little bit glib. It was sort of off the top of my head, to be honest. And uh, I was vaguely aware that there was something about not murdering. And if there was one thing I was committed to, I was not planning to murder anyone, okay? I knew that was true. I thought there was probably something in there about adultery. And while I didn't have enough experience to know if I planned to commit adultery, in general, it seemed like probably a good plan not to commit adultery. So I was probably signed off on that. But um, a Sabbath? I didn't know anything about a Sabbath, and I certainly wasn't going to do that. Honoring my father and mother. Was I signing off on honoring my father and mother? I was in rebellion against my father and mother. I wasn't planning on honoring my father and mother anytime soon. Not coveting anything anyone around me had? That didn't seem likely. I was certainly going to covet all the things I wanted to covet. You know, what I wanted, I wanted. Not bearing false witness? Okay, I'll do that one. I'm on board with that. I will, I will not intentionally smear someone's name. I promise. Uh, the first three that are all about God, having no other gods before him. No idols. Not misusing his name. Well, I was an atheist. I couldn't be expected to keep those, so check, 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 check. A solid three of the Ten Commandments I was on board for, and that's that. Well, what I didn't understand then was that the Ten Commandments were meant to work together as a system. They actually all sort of interplay with each other and rely on each other to actually promise us anything good. What was clear to me, even as a high school student, is that just the fact that I wasn't going to murder anyone probably didn't have much power to offer my life. You know, would my life change for the better because I wasn't planning on murdering anyone? It seemed like a given. It was, it was moot. And yet, the promise of the Ten Commandments is the promise of a transformed life, that we're actually completely transformed, know and love a living God, see our lives flourish. That was unclear to me how that could possibly come to pass based on my high school level commitment to them. Um, the system that is going to give us these great benefits is dependent on, shock of shocks, a living God, an actual God who does actual things. It gets driven home, as we're going to see in a minute, by these first three commandments, which is what we're looking at today. Um, the one in particular, that, just to flag where we're headed, that talks about not misusing God's name has quite a little oomph to lead us into some of the more ethical things that I think you might find surprising. Um, it seems to me that the Ten Commandments begin by talking about the fact that self-help doesn't work, strangely enough. I think they begin by saying the only hope that life rules has to offer us is if they're connected to an actual power source that will give them the power of transformation that's needed. That there are no, it's as if we have certain pieces on a chessboard and we can move the pieces around endlessly and it might be wiser to put some pieces over here and some pieces over there and some pieces over there, but we still just have pieces on a chessboard. It's as if with a certain power, what if those pieces could come to life and we have a whole society? It's as if the Ten Commandments is saying, I am to self-help as utter new creation is to something that's dead on its own terms. So the context for the Ten Commandments begins with this comment about who is this God we're dealing with, where we get told, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he starts off by saying, I'm a God who lives, who's active, and who's shown myself as being willing to do things for you personally. I'm not just distant and out there. So again, my high school self would have had nothing to do with that. I, I knew of no such God. And so in one sense, the rest was sort of off the table. It's sort of a, you can't pass go without getting past who this God is that we're dealing with. So you could argue that the first step in the life transformation promised by the Ten Commandments would be something, give or take, like this. Notice and tell others about the great things God has done for you. And that should be one of our slides here. There we go. Notice and tell others about the great things God has done for you. Because he begins by saying, do you notice who I am? 
I actually did things for you. I brought you out of slavery. You kind of need to remember that or the rest of the stuff is not going to have any transformative power for you. And telling others. He talks about uh, the consequence of uh, testifying, as he says, to who he is in the Psalms. That what it means that he's the God who's brought us out of slavery is that that's worth mentioning. That that's sort of it's one thing that kind of brings it to life for us. Again, the Psalms are full of this. It has promises like, praise the Lord, I tell myself, and never forget all the good things he does for me. We have to kind of call those good things to mind. Without calling them to mind, he will have no power in the rest of our lives. Or we get things like Psalm 107. Those who are wise will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. So I wonder if that's true for you. Uh, For many of you, I know you could, at the snap of a finger, call to mind specific things that you feel like God has done for you, specific ways that you feel like, wow, my life would not be what it is if there weren't a living and active God who answered a prayer, who, um, who did something for me. For others, that might be a little bit more of a new thought of, huh, is that true? Has there been a God who's been sort of shadowing me and tracking me and caring for me in this way? Um, One time the power of this was brought home to me uh, was when I was working as a college chaplain for a couple of years. I was doing this while I was also a theology student, so my time was a little divided. I was doing the college chaplain work and the theology student work at the same time. One of the complexities of my job is that the students I was working with had fairly mixed feelings about whether they wanted a college chaplain at all. I was brought in to work in a department with students, and yet they were telling me, we'd rather this be student-led to some degree. We're not sure we need you. And I was saying, okay, well, I guess I was misinformed. Sorry, I'll go back and talk to the home office. And they're saying, no, 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 no. We do need you. Don't go talk to the home office. You know, stick around because you certainly have things you can offer us, but back off because we need our space to do what we need to do too. I'm thinking, you want me, you don't want, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm somehow not subtle enough and sophisticated enough to navigate my way through this, but I foolishly stuck around, and so as a result of sticking around, I found myself in the middle of exasperating conflicts all the time. Conflicts between people on the campus, conflicts between people who had mixed feelings about whether they really wanted me to be in their lives. I was constantly putting out fires and, and, and uh, helping people get through things that seemed to have no end. Sometimes when you're working with people in conflicts, it's positive because you see that the conflicts can be resolved and something really wonderful happens as a result. That's not what we're talking about here. There was none of that. It was all just working with conflicts and then having more and more and more like a never-ending tide. Um, It was also discouraging. It made me not only doubt that there was going to be anything good from my time there, it threw me into doubt that there was any good thing in my future. I saw myself endlessly stuck in this place, never able to leave, like I was in some sort of purgatory. Um, In the middle of feeling as down as I was feeling there, it suddenly hit me that the Ten Commandments were true. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I suddenly thought, there's a God behind all this. That's right. There's a God that sort of brought me into this whole situation. And has he ever done anything for me? By gum, yes, he had. He'd done a lot of things for me. I had come into a relationship with God so depressed, so demoralized. And as I got to know God, that really just almost broke like it was a spirit that was suddenly gone. I suddenly felt, had felt so much more hopeful. He brought me the kind of friendships I never had. I'd always had, you know, I had nice people around me, but far more superficial than the sort of rich friendships I now found myself right in the middle of. He'd given me vision that there was a future for me when I really had felt hopeless at that time, that I had any future. And I thought, well, that's the God I'm dealing with. And so even if I'm in this seemingly intractable situation here, what if that's the God I'm still dealing with? What if he has the power to get me out of this Egypt as well? 
And so I found myself doing this odd thing. I found myself saying, well, if that's the God who is right with me in the middle of this circumstance that I, know, I have no idea what to do with, what would happen if I did what the Psalms say I should do with such a God and just start praising him right in the middle of all this awfulness? Start praising him that he is a rich and powerful God even if I don't know what to do, even if I don't know how to get myself out of this. And so I made it a discipline where I would wake up in the morning and I would say, okay, Dave, your key task today is to make sure you're praising God no matter what happens throughout your day and see what happens. And sure enough, I kind of had to go through a few more little dark valleys, but things began to sort of break for me. Uh, one key person who had been really challenging and unhelpful for years and years and years and years and years at this college, long before I had shown up, left uh, in the middle of that period. And I had some role in that, but he did, he left. Uh, and that seemed like there was almost like a cloud that lifted off this group. Suddenly, I began to have vision for how to tie things off there clearly and helpfully, and I started having a series of, of all things, it's the only time this has been true for me in my whole life, of dreams that seem to suggest, I have a plan for you, it's not this, it's related to this, tie things up here and try something different. And that led me to a whole different part of the country, where I had a whole different set of relationships, I tried a whole different set of things, and ultimately I ended up in Boston doing what I'm doing now. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is who we're dealing with. There's no set of life rules that can get past that fact. Either we have a powerful God working for us, whom we're doing our best to keep an eye on, to realize he's the one we're working with, or that's just off the table and we're trying to make the best of it that we can with whatever tips we find most helpful. But those are two very different um, approaches to life. Uh, for the second point, which comes from his first commandment, I thought of all things of wisdom from a Steve Martin movie. I don't know if you often find that spiritual insight comes to you from Steve Martin, but he's been kind of a mentor for me in his own way, sort of a life coach, you might say. And, um, and, and here's one that struck me as having some powerful things to offer. Here. But that you get the spirit of it as he's walking out. His, his beloved dog runs by him, and he says, and this dog, that's all. And then the dog keeps running, and he says, I don't need the dog. <laughs> Here's the first and second commandments, which strangely enough tie in to the deep wisdom I, I have found that Steve offered me there. The first commandment we get as the commandments actually begin is this one. You shall have no other gods before me. Seems fair enough. He just said he's the, the God who brought us out of slavery, who's done things for us. So he's sort of calling on loyalty, saying, hey, please don't go to other gods to do things for you. I've already shown you that I am willing to do things for you. I want to help you. I want to give you what you need. And then he kind of extrapolates on that. God extrapolates with the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the heart of these seems to me to be that we're advised to settle in your heart that only God can make you happy. To settle in your heart that only God can make you happy. So I think of Steve, with, I thought of this guy, I thought, that's all I need. Just, I don't need anything except this paddle ball, this ashtray, this lamp, this chair. And it seems as if there's a degree to which all our lives, strangely enough, have a bit of a, an element of that to them. We don't need anything except the things we need, you know. We need nothing except what we need. And those things, of course, we need. And if we feel a lack in those things, whatever it is that we feel like, man, my life would work if I had that thing. Actually, I think what God's saying initially is, back up a minute. Whatever that thing is that would be the thing that would make your life hold together, work, suddenly be good where it's been troubling at, so, at, at this point, that thing, I think he's saying, could be an idol 
that we have just made before God, an image of something that we're worshiping apart from him, even if it's a good thing. I think his point is that we oversell in our own hearts what this next thing is going to do, even if it's the thing that seems to have tremendous possibility and tremendous power. So it could be, you know, a new job. It could be a new place to live. It could be losing weight. It could be a relationship. It could be whatever it is. Those things are not bad things. And there's, I mean, I'm sure all those things would be worthy things to get. It's not that they're bad. But it's that there is no circumstance, there's nothing in and of itself that's going to fundamentally change our existence, that's going to take us from being pieces on a chessboard to being a living game, as it were. That's a transformative experience that only the God uh, of the universe himself can provide. Jesus rephrases these commands in the Sermon on the Mount this way. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's funny to notice, as you look at how Jesus recasts the Ten Commandments, he starts talking a lot about our affections. He talks about things like we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we should rejoice and be glad if we're persecuted for God. And here he's talking about where your affections are is where your whole life is going to go. Are your affections in stuff, the stuff Steve's collecting on his way out the door, or are your affections in the ultimate treasure of God himself? Are we storing up ultimate different sorts of treasures? As if that's actually not like a a worthy Hallmark greeting card-like sentiment. Wouldn't it be special? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Love God more than stuff. You think, well, amen to that. What a good thought. As if he's saying, no, seriously, you should do that. Because if you find a way into that, suddenly life begins to lock in where I can actually start being the powerful God you're looking for in your life. Uh, So long as we're looking to the ashtray, the lamp, the chair, uh, as the thing that's going to make us happy, it sort of aces God out, as it were. A turning point in my life came not long after my college chaplain experience where I was following some of the things I felt God was speaking to me. I'd gone to this new part of the country, and while ultimately that was a completely life-transforming experience, the early returns were not good. So I moved to this new part of the country somewhat because I had a bunch of friends there. So I thought, well, I'll have some support as I explore this different part of my life. All my friends, almost all of them moved out within like a two-month period of time. Their, their lives took them elsewhere, and suddenly I had no friends up there. I moved up there because I wanted to explore a certain sort of churches. So I went to this one church where I could get involved in that and learn about that. The church disbanded like four months after I joined it. I thought, well, I had some sort of um, creative dreams, arts dreams I was going to pursue. And they initially went great. I, I had done some work. My work got picked up right away by somebody who could really help me. And then it kind of crashed and burned before it was done. I now was working a um, part-time job, which the job was very flexible and wonderful in that sense, but was boring as all get out and tedious and, uh, and often sort of lonely. It would be sort of isolated work. And so this one day I'm thinking, God, here I am. I have no friends. I did. They all left. I have no real job. My job is sort of tedious, boring, and alone. I was going to learn it from this church, which disbanded. I'm feeling kind of low. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Where's my life going again? What was the big dream I had that this powerful God was going to get me? And it seemed as if God was saying, here's my first offer to you, Dave. Get to know the God who created you better than you do. 
That, if you can do that, you're going to get the first three commandments, which is all the power to start empowering all the life change of the entire Ten Commandments. And I said, well, God, I went to seminary. I've studied you like crazy. Who's worked harder to get to know the living God than me? And it seemed as if he said, no, seriously, what does it mean for you to bank all your treasures on me, that I'm alive, that I'm there for you, and that even if everything else looks bleak, that I can bring things from the ashes. So I thought, I don't know, I could learn how to pray better or learn how to just hang out with you more, and I tried to do that. And sure enough, that was the beginning of some really central turnarounds. The last commandment that we're going to look at uh, today, and the last one of the Ten Commandments that deals with our relationship with God directly, talks about the strange idea of how to treat God's name. So we get, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This can seem a little hard to understand. We don't talk about other people that way, like, my name is Dave. Do not misuse the name of Dave. Don't misuse Dave's name. You think, with our friends, we don't tend to quite talk on those terms. What on earth is he talking about? It seems for him that he's talking about um, the idea that God's name in particular, maybe all our names, actually reveals something about us, that names have their own power, and that as we know names, we actually know something fairly profound and deep about someone, strangely enough, just by knowing how they have been named. And then God's name takes on a unique sort of power specific to him nonetheless. That said, I actually had just recently learned about a book somebody wrote about whether names have destiny-changing power in them. It was a book by a man named... Paul Dickinson called names. And so his hobby over the years was collecting strange and unusual names and finding out who these people were and what they did with their lives. And um, so here's a few. Uh, He discovered that some names seem to be prophetic. Um, Recently, there was a Montreal window washer who died by accident. He noticed the obituary. The man's name was Will Drop. Hmm. So just think about that one. He, he, be, he became aware that other people seemed destined for certain occupations. So there was a man named Joe Bunt who became a baseball coach. There was a barber whose name was Dan Druff, D-R-U-F-F, Dan Druff. Uh, I, I, this, is, this is the name, man. This is not a joke. This is the name. Um, podiatrist named Jeff Treadwell. Uh, he found two police officers and partners. One man's last name was Goforth. The other man's last name was Ketchum. Goforth and Ketchum, who were <laughs> police officers, and they'd become partners on the force. Um, he, he, he got into this little theme of partners, naming, names of partners, and so he found partners in a church equipment business. One man's name was O'Neill. The other one's name was Prey, O'Neill and Prey. There was a psychologist, now this is, there, we're getting some really weird names here, uh, whose name was Wonderfully, his, his parents named him Wonderfully, his last name was Trembly. Wonderfully Trembly became a psychologist. Uh, a man named Zoltan Overy became a gynecologist. <laughs> On that theme, a man named, who went by his initials, which were PP, his name was PP Peters, became a urologist. I'll just let that one go, but he put that in the book, it was in the book. And there's a plaster contractor he found whose also name, name was also Will, as Will Drop had been. The plaster c- contractor's name was Will Crumble. Um, so obviously these are oddities. He found odd names that had odd connections with who they became. But his little bemused point became, do names have any actual power? Do they actually reveal something about us that has some oomph to it behind it? 
God's name in particular does seem to have a particular power. There's a story in the New Testament book called the Acts of the Apostles that talks about that power that says this. Some men who were traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus. The incantation they used was this. I command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But when they tried it on a man possessed by an evil spirit, the spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And he leaped on them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and badly injured. It's sort of a violent and comic story simultaneously. But the idea is, here are these people who don't actually have any real relationship with Jesus, but they see Paul and... um, Uh, using Jesus' name with great power. And so they think, we'll just use the name of Jesus ourselves. And the spirits they're dealing with actually take the name seriously and realize you can't use the name if you have no connection with the name. And so you're stirring things up you shouldn't do, and so we're going to pound you, as if there was something really going on. Um, I'm running a little low on time, but I have story after story like this in my own life. I have stories about when my wife Grace and I were invited by some friends of ours who'd started a wonderful house for teenage runaways in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. But their house seemed gloomy. It seemed like a place they didn't enjoy getting back to. The staff of the house were fighting with each other. And it just was an unpleasant place to be. And they said, could you come and pray for us at this house? And so we went over. And right away, we felt there's some real spiritual dynamics here. And so we went through the house with some things we'd learned in the past, but among them is that we said, in Jesus' name, we cleanse this house. We asked that there'd be power for the purposes of Jesus here, and it was a night and day difference. We just were getting thank you letters, flowers, you know, uh, happy stories about how the dynamic of the house had utterly changed, and it was this name thing that seemed to have real power. Um, There would seem to be two clear commandments uh, or thoughts or steps that we could take from the third commandment, and then I will try to close this. The first is leave behind God and Jesus-based profanity. Leave behind God and Jesus-based profanity. All other profanity, go for it. What do I care? But, <laughs> but God and Jesus-based profanity seem like unwise things here. Why would that be so? It's, it seems like it's so because using God's name as an oath, which we'll talk about in a minute, seems he's saying it's an inappropriate use of something that's actually real and has actual power, almost like the sons of Sceva. We're using Jesus' name as a, an incantation in a way that was, would only bring harm. That seems to be some of the spirit about misusing the name here. The second thing that seems to be true here is keep the commitments you make, strangely enough. Um, this, again, goes to the heart of something Jesus again taught when he was referring to this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus is referring back to misusing God's name here because he's talking about using God's name as an oath. As it were, by God, I will do this. Um, Any way in which we have to say anything beyond yes, no, I will do this, or whatever else, Jesus is saying is actually a breach of the use of God's name. That we don't have the power to make God back up our statements. We do have our own word, which has its own power, and we should do that. Anything else is almost like a profanity. I remember um, early on I was starting to follow God, 
and someone had had some tremendously difficult things happen to them, uh, and they shared them with me. And I said, wow, that's terrible. I'll pray for you. And the person looked me in the eye and said, thank you so much, but I'm really counting on you to actually pray for me because you said that. So you're saying you will actually pray for me. And I realized at that moment that I had no intention of praying for them. It just seemed like the nice thing to say. But then I'm sort of trapped, right? They've Wow, now they're questioning my integrity. So no, no, I will pray for you. But then as I left, I thought, well, now I actually have to do it, don't I? I sort of had to take an oath that I wasn't lying when I said I would pray for them because in point of fact, I was lying and they called me on it. Um, that sort of thing has stayed with me over the years. As a pastor, can you imagine a few people come up and they tell me hard things about their lives and I say, I'll pray for you. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Happens all the time. I've learned to say things like, as you may have noticed this in my email to you, I will often say things like, wow, I'm so sorry to hear that. I have prayed for you. Because in point of fact, by the time I write the email, I want to make sure that I have prayed for them. I may say a little less frequently, I will pray for you. Because if I say I will, that means some indefinite future prayers that are going to go on until the end of time. I'm not sure I can actually keep that promise. And I want to make sure I'm saying what's true. Um, but nonetheless, keep the commitments you've made. seems to be part of not misusing the name of God. Over these next six weeks, we're going to be looking over the key rules we're given for a life that works, the ultimate self-help, as it were. But I think what self-help, the $8 billion a year industry that we're in the middle of in the U.S. has taught us, is that good rules, even if they're good, even if they're wise things to do, good, even wise tips without actual power behind them do not get us where we need to go. And it seems to me the first three commandments are trying to set us on much more solid footing than that. The first three commandments are telling us what you need is a transformed life. You don't just need something different circumstantially. You need transformation. And then all the other circumstances can flow right into that, and that will be the change you're looking for. Stand with me. Let's pray together, if you would. Let's pray. Father God, we all need help. I'm sure that's one reason self-help is such a big industry, is that everyone needs help. Everyone needs a life that's better in many, many ways than what we're experiencing now. God, help us look to the actual source of all power for change in all the areas of our life where we would like our lives to be different. Show us what it would look like to turn to you, the God who brought us out of slavery in the land of Egypt, as a first instinct for our jobs and our relationships and our health, um, for our prosperity, for all the things, for our dreams, all the things, Lord, that are on our heart, what would it look like to go to you, the God who can answer all prayers, who can walk with all people, and then see you transform us as you bring those things our way? And Father, I want to ask forgiveness for any ways in which I don't do that, for any ways in which I'm just looking for whatever will get me the goods quickest. And if you seem a little slow, Forgive me for not uh, trusting you in that area. So, Father, I ask now that you would come in greater power. I pray, God, that you would come in a way that would per be persuasive, that you're worth trusting over all things. Come, Lord, come in power right now. Holy Spirit, would you come? Take us someplace surprising, personally and corporately, even now, in Jesus' name.